This episode of Introverted Intuition is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you are a consistent listener of this podcast and you know the members of this show go through our own issues and deal with mental health in our own ways, but sometimes you need an extra hand, and that's what BetterHelp provides. In under 24 hours, BetterHelp provides you with a licensed therapist in their network that will give you thoughtful and timely responses. It can send you any type of information or advice or just anything you may need to get through your day and make it to the next one. So go to betterhelp.com backslash introvert. Use the code introvert to get 10% off your first month and get yourself the help you deserve and that you may need. And you may not even think you need it, but I promise you talking to someone is the most beneficial thing for you. So go to betterhelp.com backslash introvert. Use the code introvert, I-N-T-R-O-V-E-R-T to get 10% off your first month and uh, get the help you deserve. Thank you. Check, check, check. If you're hearing the sound of my voice or watching this on YouTube, that means you're now tuned into another chapter of the Introverted Intuition Podcast. My name is Jeff, a.k.a. The Petty Podcaster, a.k.a. The Ambitious Introvert, a.k.a. The Leader of the Libras. It is just me in the studio tonight. All my other co-hosts are not present for different reasons, but they're definitely doing what they need to do to maintain their peace and their happiness. And uh, they'll be back next week, I'm sure. Uh, but tonight, I have a special guest with me who... Shit was recommended to, to to me to come on the podcast earlier this year, multiple times actually, and uh, I just haven't really found time a, a proper time to have him on the podcast. But being that we've been talking about resentment and really been honing in on mental health shit uh, for the past few episodes, more than more so than ever, I wanted to have him on because this podcast is dedicated to mental health, and I'm honestly a fan. So uh, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, thanks for having me. First off, I uh, appreciate it. And similar to what you said, um, I was, I was told to, to connect with you guys to, to get on and, and collab on, on a pod. So I'm, I'm thankful for, for the opportunity to be here and, um, flattered that you wanted to have me on. So, so thank you for that. But, um, I'm Wally White. I'm the host of the 730 podcast. Uh, a podcast sort of explores how mental health intersects with black culture. Mm. And um, it's something that I did or I launched uh, within the last year. Uh, first episode got released in August. And, and since then, I've been rolling. We're 11 episodes in and Dope. just just going. I got I got a lot of questions that will range from you taking you going back, going back into the past to looking forward to the future. But I want to start in the present right now. So how are you and how has 2020 been for you so far? Honestly, man, um, twenty the start of twenty twenty has been like pretty intense for me, and I've been going through a lot. Not in the sense of I'm having a hard time. I've had some difficult days, yeah. Um, but there's been a lot of things happening. Um, some transitions, some just life stuff. Like, um, and I, I won't be vague, but I'll, I'll be pretty specific. Like. <clears throat> My um my older brother, uh, I was adopted, so my older biological brother has been in prison for 16 years, mm. uh, and he and I don't have the, the greatest relationship. In fact, we don't really have a relationship at all, um, but he got out of prison in late December, like right before Christmas, mm. and so that that was like a big thing for me. There was a lot of 
had a lot of emotions about happiness, that. sadness, anger. I mean, I was happy for him, you know, um, but I also know that there's a level of toxicity to that relationship for me that's not healthy that I can't really be too involved with. So I've been trying to like help him from afar, right. um, but I can't really be directly, directly involved. And so that, that, that's been tough. There's like some survivor's guilt around that. Um, I could have easily been in his shoes and, um, thankfully I wasn't. And, you know, one of the things I've been saying to people is my brother, it's going to sound, can I curse on this? Of course. It's going to sound kind of fucked up, but the, my brother going to prison was like the greatest gift he ever gave me. Mm. And, um, I don't know if there is, I can't think of much else that he gave me. Like he taught, I learned some, I learned a lot from him. Right. Um, I got my like competitive spirit as an athlete from him because I was competing against him all the time. I like wanted to be better than him. Um, and I can't tell you how many fist fights we got in on the basketball court. You know what I mean? Yeah, Just yeah, yeah. being brothers. So, um, that was like part, that was part of my experience and he taught me a lot in that domain. Uh, but outside of that, I didn't really, what I got from my brother was like, I learned a lot of what not to do or what I didn't want to be or what I didn't want to partake in or the pe- kind of people I didn't want to be around. And so my brother going to prison, that being like the, the, um, the end outcome of a series of, uh, I won't, I don't want to classify them as bad decisions, but just mistakes, mm-hmm. um, really shed light for me is like, yo, like you can't really be doing anything in this regard. You can't be around any of these types of people um, because you don't want to be in that situation. May I ask why he went to prison? I don't, I don't want to get too far. It was like pretty public. um, So I don't want to get like too, too into it, but essentially I'll I'll break it down to, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. And, um, it changed his life, you know. One one decision to go one place and and trust one person changed his life forever. Yeah, and um, it was like a really unfortunate situation. And at the time, I was in high school, and you know, my brother went to prison. He was in his early twenties, and you know, I look back on that now. And I'm a teacher, and I have students that former students of mine that are in their early twenties. Actually, on the way over here. I saw one of my former students just bumped into him on the street. Wow, he okay. He didn't even recognize it. He's like, oh, shit. <laughs> um, and he was with his, uh, he was with a friend, and I, I like, stopped him on the street. I was like, yo, you know, I'm going to kill you. And his friend's like, who the hell is this dude? <laughs> so, um, no, but I, like, looking back on that experience, my brother was really young, you know? And so I have, like, a lot of empathy for him in that regard. Uh, and like, like I said, I have some survivor's guilt in relation to, like, everything that happened to him. And, you know, a lot of things that I had to go through in my childhood, he had to go through, too. Yeah. And he was a little older, so he probably got to feel it maybe even a little bit more intensely. Um like I was when I came into the world, my parents were not together at all. So all I knew was my parents not being together. Yeah. But my brother had five years before that where my parents were together, and it was like I can't imagine it was just completely dysfunctional. You know, mm-hmm. there's so much dysfunction in that. So, um, where does the um, like he was an inspiration to you in some way, and he, he taught you some things and how to survive, I guess, and, and stuff like that. But where does the resentment i guess or the 
disconnect come in? Like, why don't you want to strive to have a better relationship with him? I mean, you're teaching your kids, your your students how to avoid that lifestyle, and you're with someone. You're so you're connected to someone, related to someone who is an example of that. Maybe his story could help them as well. Yeah, I mean, I like to think of the work I do as being an extension of everything I wish I or somebody else could have given my brother. Mm. Um, and so when I see my kids, I see my brother in a lot of ways. And I try to make, uh, I'm very intentional about that. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's funny, when my brother came home from prison, I was a pre- it was a pretty emotional day for me. Um and we had practice, you know, as I told you, I'm a basketball coach, and we had practice. And before practice, like, the kids could tell, like, something was visibly up with me, you know? And I just explained to them, you know? I was like, this is, this is, I explained to them exactly what I just explained to you. Yeah. Um, and they were, you know, they were, it was something that I've never disclosed with them. So they were like, oh, shit, you know? Like, yeah. wow. Um, I even got a text from one of them later at night, like, Wally, I feel really bad. Um, and so it was, it's just interesting. I try to have those moments of vulnerability, have those moments of like those teaching moments with them. Yeah. Um, like you don't have to make these types of decisions to have these outcomes. But back to your question, the original question, I just think there's like a level of toxicity that comes with that particular relationship. Um, you know, as I explained to you, I, I was transracially adopted. Um, and so both of my biological parents are no longer alive. Mm. Uh, my dad died when I was 13. And my mom uh, passed two and a half years ago. Um, but the last 15 years of my mom's life, I didn't have a relationship with her at all, really. I maybe saw her 10 times, yeah. maybe five, seven, I don't know. Mm. Um, but there was like a lot of addiction in my my household growing up. Both my parents were addicted to crack. Um my dad died from a crack overdose wow. and um and my that my family my biological family particularly on my mom's side it's like a lot of complex relationships to work around um a lot of manipulation mm. um and so me being you know i came out of that experience with my family as being one of the people that, you know, had a career track, went to college, you know, you know, for lack of a better term, like made something like I'm not I don't have to look over my shoulder yeah. during the day and be like, oh, is what I'm doing um, legit? You know, is what I'm doing? Um, am I compromising my freedom, my, my life, my livelihood in any way? Um, I don't have to really ask myself those questions. And I feel like growing up, a lot of people, not all of them, yeah. but a lot of people in my family had to do that, right? And um, and so for that, I really disconnected myself from a lot of them. Uh, it's been my way of survival in a lot of ways, um, just avoiding the toxicity, avoiding like the manipulation and um in some ways, I would say I've run from it, and that's been like a flaw and, and something that I'm still trying to work through. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, I look at it as being completely necessary. It's like what I had to do to get out. Yeah. And if I didn't do what I did, then I would be in that shit. You know what I mean? And so having the wherewithal to like make those decisions, I think, was even a form of empowerment for myself, you know? 
Um, I don't ma- imagine that was easy to do. I mean, they tell the way it's told to us is like family is all you got at the end of the day. But it seems like in your case, all you have was yourself. Right. I mean, um, no, there's a couple quotes that I always like to refer back to is like, um, family isn't always like defined by bloodline mm. and, um, you know, friends are the family you choose. Uh, I really do feel that way. And, um, more recently I heard, uh, forgiveness, uh, doesn't mean inclusion. Mm. That's a fact. And so, you know, I have all these things happen to me in life. Things my brother did to me, things my parents did to me, think like, you know. And you forgive them. Yeah, you could forgive them, but that doesn't mean I have to have you in my life, you know. Um, And I think we, you know, it's funny, we had this conversation on an episode I had with Felonius Monk where he was talking about this very idea. Like, we're taught, and since we're we're like, you know, peewees, that, that... we're supposed to put our parents and our family in like the highest regard. Um, but doing that, you compromise a part of yourself or you can p- compromise part of yourself yeah. at times. Um, if those relationships are toxic, you know? And so the way I always like to look at it is I never came into the world asking for the dysfunction to be what it was, mm-hmm. you know, not asking for relationships to be what they were. Um, and so everybody else that sort of brought me into this life of mine had, you know, they had their own shit that they had to deal with. My parents had their own shit that they had to deal with. They have fucked up childhoods too, you know? Um, but they made decisions too, you know, for themselves. Um, and I look at it like I'm making decisions for myself. Uh, and I, I hope the decisions I'm making for myself are, are, are good and, um, I think that they are. Do you have your own family? Like kids and all that stuff? Yeah. No, man. Is, is that a, a goal of yours one day? Um, because I feel like you have a clear example of what you don't want your family to be. No, like 100%. Have, so I feel like I'm, I feel like that'd be like a driving force to have your own. Yeah, I, um, I would, I'm, I would really love to have my own family. Um, sometimes I think about bringing kids in the world, in the state of the world, and I'm like, why would I do that? Mm-hmm. Um, why would I subject um, new life to that? Um, but at the same time, it's something, you know, my dad, despite all of his flaws and drawbacks, uh, he was a good dad, you know. Uh, he instilled a lot in me and taught me a lot and taught me the value of friendships. Like, I don't know if I would value my friendships as much as I do had it not been for my dad, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So we used to walk around Harlem when I was a kid because my dad spent a lot of time in Harlem. And we just bump into, like, all these old timers that my dad knew. I was like, how the hell do you know all these people? And my dad be like, yeah, I knew that guy for 30 years. I knew this guy for 35 years, you know? And I'm like, I'm 10, 11. I'm like, how the hell you have a friendship that long? My life is like, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so I got a lot from, from my family and, and even my mom, she taught me some things too. But, um, with that being said, I, yeah, I would love to, it is a goal of mine one day to have a, have a family of my own, but I still feel like I got shit to work through, you know? Yeah. That's and, what we all do. <laughs> and in, until I, and I'll, I'm always going to be working through things, but until I really get into a place where I feel comfortable. Um, you know, it's funny you bring up this kid thing or family thing, because a lot of times I envision myself having a kid 
more than I see myself being married. I feel that too. And it's like, I don't know if that's something that's a, a product of the way in which I was, which I grew up, where it was just marriage wasn't really a part of my early childhood. Love wasn't a parent of, as a parent in my home. I mean, real love, like I've only seen that on television. That's not even true, right? Um, right. So, what was your experience like in your, in your house? Uh, so when you were speaking about memories with your dad, it, it kind of made me wish I had that. I don't know this man. I've only seen a picture of him when he was graduating high school, the graduation photo, and that's the only thing I've seen. And like, I vividly remember going to where his mother's house was and he was there. And I vividly remember looking up the stairs and seeing a figure standing there just looking down at me. And that was him, but I didn't, couldn't see his face. And I just remember him looking down for a few seconds and walking into the room and locking it. And I have no memories of my father. So like growing up, like the closest thing to real love that I saw was like my grandfather and my grandmother. And I was raised by, my, by them, my mom and my aunt. We live, all lived in the same house and my uncle. And, um, they were very, very happy, but then that was short-lived after he passed, and then that just trickled, the depression trickled down from my grandmother to my mom to me, and that's just what's been, a, I feel like, a consistent factor in my household in my entire life. Like depression. depression? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, when people say it's like hereditary and stuff like that, like, I think that is true, part of it, but like, you could just feel that energy, especially when you're young. I feel like you absorb energy way more, or I guess, maybe even way faster, too. Like, you just... But you pay attention a lot to you. You you you're on the coattails of your family more when when you're younger, and so you you're absorbing that energy, not just the experience. And um, yeah, depression has just been a consistent factor in my entire life and my entire family. It's funny you say that though, because you're not only absorbing the energy. I'm thinking back on my childhood, but you're you're learning behaviors, mm -hmm. certain behaviors, certain ways of being. So like. I think about this, like two weeks ago, it was a Sunday, and I like, I legitimately stayed in my bed until like four o'clock, which I hate to do. I don't like, to, I never like to do that. Um, never makes me feel good. Um, I like to actually, on the weekends, I like to be up early and, you know, make the most of the time I have. Um, but I wasn't feeling good emotionally, mm -hmm. so I didn't want to be social, right? It wasn't even like I had social anxiety. It was just like, yo, I don't really want to deal with people right now. I'm not really trying. It takes trying, energy. I'm not trying to see the world, right? And when you're depressed, like I've been depressed, that's like never a good look, right? And so that's like a, a good sign for me. But I look back on that. And, and so that day, I didn't leave my house the whole day. And then I went to work the next morning. And on, on the Monday, I'm leaving my house. And I'm like... Oh shit, this is what it feels like to be outside. <laughs> yeah. Right? I had that like, woo. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm saying all that because that very behavior of staying in my bed until four o'clock or whatever, that shit I saw my parents do when I was a kid. Yeah. You know? Um, and so, and I think in seeing it, I don't know if I thought of it as normal, but I, I often thought, all right, this is like the way people, people, no, I, I I didn't. I definitely didn't think of it as normal. I knew like why watching my mother like sit on her bed and like watch soap operas all day yeah. was like not the way, you know. Um, I've been so, examining like just my being and pretty much everyone's being. I feel like I'm sorry if I cut you off. I feel like half of our existence is like our individuality, and the other half is like what we inherited growing up, like that learned behavior, and. Um, I feel like for some people it can be like 75, 25. You like give a bit of a bit of individuality, but you have more of what you learned and saw growing up. And I feel like that's kind of what I've been. I feel like I've 
been able to express myself emotionally because of my grandmother and my mother. I've seen them the way they react in certain situations and how they speak. And I just how 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 did they speak and like how did how did that impact you as a kid and 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 looking back on it now how has it helped with your evolution or has it helped with your evolution uh i mean they were very nurturing and very accepting and very loving people but i feel like they put the blinders on me a lot they weren't very honest with me at times when especially when i messed up and they nurtured me a lot and that made me a bit soft even now to this day when things don't go my way or when people tell me certain things and it's uh it's very honest and very direct i'm resistant to that and i get very sensitive because i'm used to being coddled and being kind of lied to right so i feel like that's like the one thing that really has affected me negatively now to this day everything else i feel i mean whatever i can think of i guess it's it's pretty much good like learning to express myself emotionally and uh but still be a a man i kind of learned how to be a man from two women and um it's crazy right yeah and i think the best thing like you maybe your brother like you said your brother not being around was the best thing to happen to you i think not having a father around was the best thing to happen to me even though i've always wanted that i feel like I attribute a lot of my negative traits, and this isn't fair to that man, and my therapist told me that like I don't know truly who he was, but I attribute a lot of my negative traits that I held to this day to him, because I, I only know my mother is a good person. And um, so I really do try to move in the best way I can and be my mother's son and not try to identify or be anything like that man, because, I mean, again, I don't know who he was, but... You said you was you said you were coddled a lot as a kid. But I was, yeah. The blinders were up. What? How did that manifest itself, and how you learned about your father through your family? Why well, I, I didn't really like. We never really. It was one of those like things I was always curious about, but I was too afraid to ask. And my mom and I actually just last year, like I think in maybe December and November, had like a talk, and she explained to me what she knew of what happened with that situation. It's not much, but he just left when she was pregnant with me. And I, you know, you can imagine the nineties, like it's, um, it's very expensive, you know, people, they were young too. So like, I can imagine, I, I can see why a young dude who's ambitious, probably has goals, would want to abandon or not have a kid. I could see that rationally, not rationally, but like, I can understand that side of life. But yeah, I mean, to some extent as a, it's not fair. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not fair. And I think. I think I look at fathers, but particularly black fathers that are absent, or any father that's absent for a matter, but for some reason it kind of is a little bit more visceral. Yeah. Um, like, I don't understand, like, why you wouldn't want to be around. And I guess what you're saying, it sounds like you have, like, incredible empathy for it, which I think is amazing. But I think what you're saying is true. Like, there's probably a lot of pressure and anxiety that comes with, like, bringing life in the world like yeah. what the fuck does that mean right yeah. but um but it's also like it's an incredible opportunity too right mm-hmm. um and so like how could you run away from that and i um i just never want to be that person and i think that's why i have a lot of reservations about like ever starting a family like anytime soon right right i'm like i'll probably even be like that 50 year old dad that's just like <laughs> you know yeah uh, i'll be sh- shooting jump shots with my kid when i'm 60 or something like that <laughs> sure but um but that's why i have reservations about it because i want to make sure like you're never really ready mm-hmm. but i want to make sure that i i am aware of the anxiety and the stress that comes with that 
Right. I think I don't really feel it right now. I just think it's like this. It's this thing on another planet, you know, mm-hmm. that I haven't really had to be exposed to at all yet. Going back to into 2020, like, did you, I feel like collectively we all felt the pressure of a new decade. We wanted that new change, like that big, that big, like, change in our lives. And we wanted this to be a defining moment for us. Did you feel like any of that pressure coming into 2020? And like, did your brother coming home kind of uh, stick a wrench in your plans that you had going forward since year? No, I, you know... So my brother was just one element of the stuff happening going on in 2020. I had a childhood friend of mine who had really severe schizophrenia who killed his mom in January. Oh wow. And that was very public. Um and that that was that was like really intense to see um and I think in light of some of my experiences with my own mental health that was like almost a trigger in some ways. Um, not that I have schizophrenia, but as, as you know, I'm bipolar, not, I am bipolar. I have bipolar. Um, but no, I never put like that kind of pressure on myself. Um, uh, I was listening to Mike Tyson podcast and it was like, what is time? Like time is just something that we create, you know, it's like, how do we know what time is? Like 2020, like, how do we know, you know, how do we know that I'm 32, right? That's a concept that was created by somebody else. Like, we're all just living, you know? Obviously, you age, but... So, I I guess I'm saying that and saying that, like, I've never really been moved or, or like, compelled to say, like, this is going to be a breakout year, like, New Year's resolution or New Year, New Decade. Like, Mm. I could give two fucks about any of that, you know? Mm. Uh, And that's not to say anything to people that really do get on that sort of bandwagon but i just don't operate that way um i wish i could do that no i just don't operate that way um maybe i try to set goals for myself within the year yeah um but it's not like i'm not like new year's i, I don't really like no I, I it's like i don't it does nothing for me yeah. there's some holidays that does nothing for me gotcha. new year's is one of them um I'm also just not like a super festive person, so that, that maybe that has to do something with depression. I have no idea. Are you introverted? No, I'm like I'm an extrovert in in most contexts. Ambivert, um, maybe, possibly in the middle ground. Middle ground. Yeah, somewhere. I mean, yeah, I can be, I can be both ways. You know what I'm saying? So like, amongst my friends that I've known forever, I'm extremely extroverted. Um, if I walked into a room with some people I didn't know. I'll survey hard, like, for a while. Same. Um, and even when I meet somebody new, I'm always like, like, what's your deal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I can warm up, and I think kind of, like, in 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 the context of my podcast, I can have a conversation with just about anybody. Right. And uh, I don't know if that's an extroverted quality, but it's... I'm not afraid of interaction, but as I've gotten older, I've become a little bit more intolerant of like the bullshit small talk. Oh fuck yeah! It's so the it's worst. like, so it's like if we want to get real, let's get real. Yeah. You know, if you want to ask me how I'm doing, I'm gonna tell you how I'm doing. And I've been trying to be more cognizant about that, especially since I started the podcast. Yeah, just man, somebody asked me how I'm doing, I'm like, oh, I'm good. And you know what? Actually, 
I'm not good. Like, this is shit that's going on, you know? Yeah. And I feel like I've just been trying to be more real about stuff like that. I want to I get into that because that's actually one of my questions I was going to say. But since we're here, I want to stick to it. Like, when you are a, a dating or in a relationship with somebody, like, how honest are you with your struggles with depression and how honest are you with your partner or whoever about what goes on with you? Because I feel sometimes people – from my experience, like, when I'm honest and – truthful about like my experience with depression i've had women just back off because they just don't want to deal with that they feel like they'll have to take care of me like i'm some sick patient or something like that and people can't really handle that honesty and sometimes i have reservations about being truthful at least so soon like or even really ever with certain people i indulge in and i was curious if you maybe had that same experience whether with friends or relationships yeah man it's a it's a great question that's a really really great question um i can't wait to answer it it's probably gonna be a long-winded one but but um you know, I I was I went into hospital last year, about a year t- exactly from like March fifteenth. It was Friday, March fifteenth. I went in the hospital last year, and I stayed in the hospital till f- Friday, March twenty second. So I was there for a week. A week. Um, at the time, I was dating somebody. Um, proceed like prior to my hospitalization, I was crazy depressed for like five or six months and maybe i was partially in denial about it um sometimes i think when i'm depressed or i'm going through shit like that it's hard for me to verbalize it it's hard for me to process it sometimes i need think time right and so you're in a relationship you don't really have think time somebody's like what's wrong you know you like the, your partner or whoever you're with is like really trying to f- like figure you out and figure out how they can help and like and so a lot of my year um a lot of my time leading up to my hospitalization was like rooted in a lot of that stuff and my girlfriend at the time was like you know maybe alluding to the fact that I might be that I might have bipolar and then I was like yo what the fuck are you you know I was just like I had this like nah Resistance. yeah it it made me for anybody listening to this, I think self-projecting um, what someone might have or um, what somebody might be going through is like one of the worst things you can do um, because you don't know. Um, in this case, she was right, but I will say it made me resistant to the idea of really coming to terms with that, mm. you know, because even if somebody's saying, you, you, I think you have bipolar even the mere idea of that is coming with a negative connotation. Is that because you maybe had an idea of who you were and then you were given that glitch in the matrix where maybe you didn't really have yourself figured out completely? Is that why you were kind of resistant to the even that statement if she's thinking that you have bipolar? No, it's just... I, it, no, it wasn't that as much as it's just like, just don't fucking tell me what I... You know, it was just like I was going through shit and I was like... You know, I could be really stubborn at times, and I was just like, "Get the fuck out of here with that!" Like, I don't, I don't need to hear that right now, and and that's not helping me. Um, and you know, for all intents and purposes, she was trying to help, but you could be trying to help, and and your help could be not helpful for the person that you're helping. You know, um, and so in saying all of that, that relationship ended, right? Probably for 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 her betterment and my betterment, 
Um, but since then, dating is crazy, man. I have been very, very, very transparent about what is up with me. I can't, I, I can't, I can't, I cannot be. You know, I have my podcast. That's a very public thing. Before I launched the podcast, I had to like, I was thinking, do I really want to come out about this shit? And like, how much do I really want to really sort of dump on people about, you know, my struggles about going to the hospital, about, you know, all this stuff. And I thought about it. I was like, nah, fuck it. That's like the whole purpose and point. Yeah. It's to have the conversation, to have the dialogue, to have, you know, like we're doing right now. And I think I look at Dayton the same way. It's like, yo, if I can't be straight with you from the jump, you could take it. You could take it however you want to take it. Yeah. Everybody's going to form their own opinion. Um, and everybody's going to have their own perception of like what bipolar is or what depression is or what like this is, that is. Um, but if that's going to be a deterrent for you wanting to sort of engage with me in that way romantically, then like let's get it out of the air early on. Yeah. You know, I'm not really trying to waste your time and I'm not trying to waste my time. And what I find in the process of a lot of these conversations is I've had a lot of people tell me, "Oh yeah, like my brother's bipolar or like yeah, my best friend's bipolar like or has bipolar rather." And to me it's uh, people going to have their reservations, right? Mm. They don't know what my what what bipolar looks like for me might look completely different from what it looks like for somebody that you know or somebody that you've seen that has bipolar. And so it's like people are gonna have their own perceptions of it. Um people don't I, really understand what they don't ex- they haven't experienced directly. Right. But I like to take a little quote from Muhammad Ali's book, people desire to understand that what they do not understand. Mm-hmm. Um and so yeah, I think people like people are curious. Um, yeah, I've had people like visibly. They didn't say it directly, but they're like, "Yeah, I ain't gonna really deal with the situation." Mm. You know, that, that's they entitled to that. You know, yeah. Um, they're totally entitled to that. That's their opinion. Does that make me? I think the tricky part is in these contexts, not to look at myself as not being lovable. Mm. You know, um, like there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with me, right? Everybody's got some shit going on, um, and I think as I'm starting to come to terms with that, I'm starting to come to terms with everything that happened in my life that I thought was wrong. You know, um, and so yeah, I think I don't let it like deter me at all. I'm just uh, I, I'm an open book about that stuff. Uh, at least I try to be from the from the jump. Um, and if people not down with it, they not down with it. How soon do you unpack that information? Like for me, in my experience, is like it's kind of it hasn't been right out the gate. Um, it's been like we've been talking for a few months, and I just when I go through moments of depression, like it's really really heavy, and I just kind of like sometimes I'll just not answer text message or something for a, mo- a while, or like I can't hide it. I'm very expressive with my emotions. You'll know when I'm sad. You'll feel the vibe is different, and. My experience is this just literally cause women to run because they don't want to deal with that. Like, how soon do you uh, express that honesty? About I, I mean, you gauge the situation, right? Yeah. Um, I I try to caution on the side of the earlier the better, mm. um, because then it feels like 
it feels like I have, then I have anxiety because it feels like I'm hiding something. And then when I reveal this thing, then that person can see it as, oh, he was hiding something. Mm. You understand? And so I think if you can get the thing out and have the conversation, um, or even like a brief conversation about it, uh, I think that's always like a healthier approach to dealing with any of that. How did you grow into the acceptance of, uh, is it being bipolar or having bipolar? I like to say having bipolar because okay. I think being bipolar is like you sort of putting yourself in a box. Like this is all that I am. Um, it's funny, man. After um, there's this basketball player, you know, so I played basketball in college and um, throughout my whole life. And there's this basketball, former basketball player named Larry Sanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like six or seven years ago, he just quit the NBA. He had got like a $40 million contract and quit, retired. So I don't want to play basketball anymore. And he wrote this essay for the Players' Tribune. And in the essay from from the Players' Tribune, they did like a little interview with him. And, and he said, don't neglect the and. He said, I have to remind myself not to, ne- not to neglect the and. And like the and was like, yes, I have depression or I have anxiety, but I also have and I also am all of these other things. And so it's funny, when I got out of the hospital, I got out of the hospital on a Friday. I went up to Connecticut for a March Madness game Saturday. And then I came back, and Sunday I went right to the tattoo parlor, and I got Don't Neglect the End mm. um, scripted on my on my forearm. And I just got it as a reminder that, like, yes, I'm bipolar. Like, this is a part of uh, – I have bipolar. It's a part of who I am. But it's like such a small part of who I am. Uh, and there's all these other components that like make me me. Mm-hmm. And um, so in terms of coming to terms with it uh, and how I like to describe it, I like to describe it as that because like we just acknowledge some people have like very, very, very um, uh, misinformed perceptions of like what this stuff is. Right. And it stigmatizes a result of that. So if I'm acknowledging it as part of my truth, but I'm not letting it define me. I feel like people think bipolar is literally every hour you're a different person. I feel like that's like the maybe sensationalized version of what the definition right. of bipolar is. And that's not true at all. No, it's not. And like I said, it, it manifests itself in different ways for different people. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, um I could get really secluded and just really be by myself. Um, And, you know, I'll get real because we get real on this podcast. But um, the night I went to the hospital, I remember I came home and for that like whole week, I was like just coming home and I would like go to my room and sit in the dark. Mm. I just sit in the dark. And I just that, that was like my thing for that time. And I remember the night I went to the hospital, it got so bad that I not only came home and went straight to the dark, but I, like, there might there must have been, like, eight to ten inches between my bed frame and the floor. And I was not only in the dark, but I, like, went all the way underneath my bed. And I was just, like, under, like, there might have been, like, two inches between my face and my bed frame. But I didn't, I wanted to be as far away from everything um 
And that was like, that was real. Like I, I look back on that experience and it's just like, yo, I was really in it. Um, that's not every day for me. That's not even like that. That's the only time I've ever done anything like that in my life. But that was that moment, you know? And so, um, I think it just manifests itself in different ways for different people. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I, I think having, getting the diagnosis was like also a good, a gift. Mm. It, it, it made me realize I have like the superpower. I have this thing that nobody else has. Nobody else understands it. And I have it and it's like unique to me. And, uh, there's power in that. I can, you know, I can use it as a, as a form of empowerment, as a form of educating people, as a form of extending conversations on this stuff. That's yeah. a, that's like a really amazing way to look at it because I feel like a lot of people look at it as like a curse. Like I kind of used to look at depression as a curse. I always question why I I have this, why I get so depressed, why I've had suicidal thoughts, why I've tried to kill myself, why have I, why do I in, embrace this, the the isolation, right? And I always looked at it as like a, a curse, like an anchor holding me down. But yeah, as I've grown more, just grown more and and just um, gone through therapy and stuff like that, I I do look at it like 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 you do, like kind of like a badge of honor in a way and, and like i feel like i am the catalyst to save other people yeah I t- you know I, this is like an extreme sort of approach or way of looking at it but i like to joke around and say like if i could walk down the street with like a big ass sign that says i have bipolar disorder yeah i would do it because i think it's like really important for people to and i and getting back to the question about dating and stuff like that that's why it doesn't like weird me out to be like, yo, this is like the thing, this is something that I have. And it's like, that's not like the end of the world. You know, it's not because I, I really do. I don't, I really take it as a badge of honor. And I think I take it as a badge of honor that I'm like even willing to be open about it. I think times have changed a little bit mm-hmm. and things have become a little bit less stigmatized and a little bit more normalized, but there's still stigma out there. Um, and I think that, has played a role in my ability to be a little bit more open about where I'm at and where I've been, you know, the depths of darkness that I've been, like I could be really open about it. And like, I don't feel bad about it. I feel not ashamed or anything. either. No, I feel like it's worse if you just like, I feel like there's a lot of people in the world that's faking it or covering it up. I don't want to say faking it, but like masking what, what they've been through and masking, um, their depression or masking, like whatever, um, and that that only what I found only sort of comes back to you in a negative way. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I'm an I'm an only child, and like I've I've gone through brief moments, like very brief moments, where like depression. I was free from that, and then I'm like it was it was it's really weird. I think I've said this once before on the podcast, but like when the depression isn't present, I don't really feel like myself. I feel like I'm kind of missing a part of me, right? Do you maybe identify that in any way? Like when you're, do you kind of find any form of solace within the darkness when you isolate yourself or when you're in those moments? Do you feel like a part of yourself is not really present when it's not there? I I don't, that's a fucking deep question. (laughs) Um, Maybe in some ways, um, I think about like music, for example. 
a lot of music I like to listen to sometimes is like fucking dark and 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 depressing. Like people, typical person is not like, yo, let me put this. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of artists that I listen to that kind of goes there, but um, that people might know. But um, like Boogie, the rapper Boogie from Compton. Oh yeah, he's dope. Yeah, a lot of his stuff is like rooted in depression, mental health stuff. Uh, it has like undertones of that, and I love his shit. And he's super dope and he's super nice. Um, and so I like to listen to that. And sometimes, you know, I think with music, I revisit. I often visit the dark of my of my being. Mm. That's how I visit it. That's how I sort of come to to have it, even when I don't have it. Um, and I think there is some, it's somewhat necessary for me, as twisted and cryptic as that might sound. Same. Um, but yeah, you know, there's this artist from the UK named King Cruel that I like and I listen to. And virtually all his fucking music is like dark and depressing. Yeah. Um, you fuck with XXX Tentacion? I mean, I never really got into him. Um, he had a couple songs that I liked, but. I never really got super into him. That kid was dark, man. Like, oh, I got a perfect example. Perfect example. Earl Sweatshirt. Oh, facts, yeah. That's my guy. Yeah, facts. Like, I'll listen to Earl. Like, Earl's some rap songs, man. I've I've probably listened to that album more than I've listened to anything in the last year and a half. Wow. I like the previous one more. I feel like... Continue. No, I, I mean, all of Earl's stuff I love. Um yeah. And... His most recent one, I love too. Um, he much. just has some great, great, great shit, man. Yeah, yeah. He's witty and he's real, you know. And you can find some of his stuff to be funny, but it's also like, yo, this ain't funny either. Like, there's also this element. He's actually like, I would describe Earl as like the quintessential bipolar rapper. Like he has That's like fair. he has like this. Um, and I don't know if he's bipolar, if he has bipolar or not. But the the point I'm making is like, um, he had like one line in a song. It was like Alan with the pick fro. It was like a reference to Alan Iverson. It was like kind of funny. Um, but he has so many other lines that are like, like you know, he's talking about his dad dying, and he's you know, yeah. And so he go he goes to like some real places. Um, so I love Earl. Earl's probably like. When I'm feeling real emo, I'm like listening to Earl. Right, I, I fuck with Earl too. I, I just like for my relationship with music. Um, I just the production has to be clean for me. The production has to feel hit me first before the lyrics. I'm not gonna listen to what you have to say if the production isn't right. And I feel like Earl's production has been a bit like lackluster, especially on this most recent project, in my opinion. Yeah, he's it's um. I don't know. I have a I'm a fan of like real abstract shit or shit that doesn't sound. That's fair. Uh, like that doesn't sound like everything else, and so Earl has a really unique sound, um, both in his his own delivery, but also in the production of like the music. Um, and I there's something about that I appreciate. I you know I'm not like a big fan of trap music, um, and I was never like a big fan of Future, for example. But like I could appreciate Future because I was like, oh, Future. He has like his own style, you yeah. know. He has his own style of production. He has his own style of like how he delivers, you know, his lyrics and um and he's even like a little like he's on the like he gets to like the emo super emo impressed. stuff. So um but yeah, man, Boogie, 
Earl. This is rapper from L.A. named Blue that I like to listen to. Um, Cassius King. Shout out to Cassius King. I had him on the on the podcast. Oh, really? Damn. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Cassius is like him and Blue have just done music together forever. So I feel like there's some level of like abstractness to your podcast, even the, the, from the name to the logo and to the content. Like I feel like it's it has its own lane, right? So can you explain to our audience? How the name came about, what gave you the confidence to even have these conversations on your podcast, to have have an audience to be able to potentially judge you for these things, right? You do that right. every week. Like, talk about that. Um, the name of the podcast, you know, when I was coming up with and conceptualizing the podcast, I, was, I had all these fucking whack-ass names. I was just <laughs> thinking about it. They were just like mad cheesy. I was like, I don't know. Maybe one was like the other side. or It was like shit like that. And I was like... I called my boy, and I was texting my boy, and I, I said, yo, these are some podcast names, blah, 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 blah. And he was like, I don't know about those. And I was like, oh, yeah, and 7.30. And he was like, oh, yeah, 7.30. Mm. He's like, 7.30 is it. And so, like, that was it. From there, it was on, you know. Growing up, 7.30 was like, 7.30 had just, like, the most negative connotation to it. 7.30 was like... Yo, somebody's so crazy that you don't fuck with them because you don't know. Like, they might black and it might be, like, your life. Mm. Or somebody's just really, really off. Like, oh, that person's 730. And so that's how I always, that was my relationship to the term. And I heard it a lot growing up, Mm. you know. And I think it's a very, 730 is very New York slang. You know, people aren't saying that in, like, Cali, for example, or some of these other places. Um, But 730 was very New York. And it makes sense that, like, a rapper like Big L was, like, used it on and referenced it in a song. Because Big L was very New York, you know? And so that's where the sort of concept for the, um, the podcast came up in terms of the name and title of the podcast. Um, And... I was thinking, like, we could put a, a a positive twist on 7.30. What if 7.30 was, like, a good thing, right? What if somebody was, and that somebody being me, was using this term to, because, um, like, for example, the very thing that I described to you coming home and, like, being in the dark and going under my bed, like, that is some shit that somebody would be like, yo, that motherfucker is 7.30, 730 yeah. right? And so, like, I looked at it, like, Like, you could look at some of the things I've done in my life and be like, yo, this dude is, like, really 730. Um, And maybe in some ways I am, but I don't really, I don't know. I was also thinking, like, put a positive positive twist on a term that has a very negative Negative connotation. connotation. Like, um, so it's, like, kind of a a play on words in some ways. Um, And then in terms of, like, being open with it, and being open on the podcast. It's funny. I simultaneously started working on the podcast at the same time that I, I came out of the hospital and I was like, I'm going to write a memoir. And I and I got in a memoir writing class. Hmm. And I started doing podcasts. And I was conceptually working on podcasts and working on parts of this memoir for this class that I was in. And in the process of doing that, I was realizing I was unearthing in the writing. I was unearthing a lot of things that I remember very vividly, but that I haven't given any time or space to revisit. 
and in doing that, um, I had a friend. I had a. I was out in Seattle visiting a couple of friends this summer, and one of my friends was like, "Yo, you should inject yourself into this podcast." And I have a friend out in Detroit who has a podcast, Homemade Stories. Shannon Kaysen. Shout out to Shannon. But he was one of the first people I started talking to about doing his podcast stuff because he's done a lot. He's done like over a hundred episodes now. Um, has sponsorships and all that stuff. So I talked to Shannon. Shannon was like, I was like, yeah, I want to do this podcast on mental health. And at first I was like, do athletes and mental health? And then Shannon was like, he stopped me. He was like, nah, bro. Hmm. He's like, you got to do, you got to put yourself into the podcast. And so the way in which I've approached it is just doing, doing exactly that. Like really looking at every episode doesn't necessarily show a part of me or part of my experience but a lot of them do um and some of the conversations you see it come out a little bit more naturally i also like to see the podcast as a as a as a platform for educating people um and i like to say that the podcast isn't just for uh, a targeted audience of african americans age 18 to 45 right it's it's much bigger than that like i think a white person in New York City could listen to my podcast and like learn some stuff that would help and affect their life on a day to day basis. Like mental health is like universal language. We all go through it in some form of way. Whether we acknowledge that is, is a different type of story. But yeah, I think what you're doing is important and like everyone could really relate to it in some way. I'm trying, man. And I feel like even the logo itself is kind of representative of like you're getting a different version of yourself like each episode. Like it's use you um with different express facial expressions right um i'm actually changing the podcast artwork that's fire though what yeah i got something that's more fire than that okay damn okay it's like the concept is the same okay but the artwork is a is um it's a little more me okay um and so the artwork as it currently is is like kind of like a it, it could be a rendition of me but it could be anybody you know and the one that I got now is like it's legit. I'll show it to you after. I, I have it's oh. like it's done. Okay. I just haven't like did the drop yet. Cool. Um, but it's done. It's it's official. Um, been working on it a lot. There is no hesitation going into the podcasting game. You're opening up yourself to an audience of people who don't know you, and you're also opening up a lane for them to judge you and give you negative critique or anything like that. There is no fear when uh before hitting the first record session. No, like I told you, man, I, I had to evaluate and think about a lot of things before I decided to enter the space. Right, yeah. And when I let go, it was like, oh yeah, this is what I'm this is like what I wanna do. And I think after my first recording with Cassius King and I went out to Crenshaw and we recorded out there, it was like, Yeah, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, that conversation was therapy for me. It was therapy for him. It was like, yo, this is, this is what we're, this is what I'm meant to do, you know? And I still feel that way. It's like the podcast as it currently is constructed is like what sometimes you have things that are falling in your lap to happen. And like, this is the thing that's falling in my lap that's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's like really sort of drives a lot of this is, What's allowed me to be upfront and open about my own shit was very much influenced about a lot of things that other people opened up about. Right. And so I'm like, 
those people helped me. And so in some ways I feel like I'm just paying it forward, you know, mm. um, and paying it forward for the person that, you know, might connect with things that I share about my own experiences, about other people's experiences that might help them come to terms with, with stuff that they've been through. What's, what's like your guest picking process? Like, how do you decide who you bring on the podcast? Is it just, you shoot, throw darts to the wall, whoever responds, comes on? Well, initially, um, it was funny. Initially, I was really nervous about getting guests and, you know, I was like, all right, I'm going to just reach out to these people. I had, you know, I think initially I had like a guest of like 50, like heavy hitters, people I wanted to have on the podcast. And I reached out to some of those guests, but there were specific guests that I knew I wanted to have on. Um, a lot of it, I would say half of the guests I've had on have been people that I've reached out to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been willing to be on. Um, and then the other maybe half or third has been people that people have connected me to. So either people that have listened to the podcast or people that I don't know who've listened to podcasts, like you got to interview this person, like, um, or people that I know being like, you know, yeah, you got to get this American, uh, president of the APA in your podcast. I know her son, like, and we locked it in. And so there's a, there's been a lot of that. And, um, the biggest challenge was, you know, early on starting off is like not being afraid of no. Mm. Um, people have told me no, like they don't want to, do this and Same. enter this space and but that's okay you know and uh people are entitled to do that and the show goes on you know there's for every person that doesn't say no there's three people that say yes you know i had shamika hostclaw was like she's a former WNBA player olympian like you know hall of fame basketball player and she was like atop my list of people i wanted to have on she had bipolar, had suicide attempts, all these things. And I was like, I don't know if I ever get her on. And I reached out. She got back to me. Her wife got back to me. Like, she was on a third episode. You That's know? dope. And so, like, this is somebody I really, really wanted to have on. And now, now me and Meek are like, we have, you know, we constantly going back and forth. Um, not constantly, but we, we, we correspond. I correspond with Shamika Hosko, somebody that like I I grew up um, looking up to, and you know she just sent me some stuff about a, a mental health event last week. She was like, you know, I'm trying to get her on the court when she moved back out to New York. Do you not look at this as like, like I feel like when I do podcasts now, I think it just I look at it as just conversation, like just no microphones, the cameras, all that shit doesn't exist. It's just a conversation. Like, did you feel comfortable speaking into a microphone and come conversing with people you never really met before? Not at all. You had to grow into it? Yeah. And I'm still growing into it. You know, it's a, it's a process. It's, um, I'm exercising a new muscle. Mm. Um, but that's also, I'm, I'm, I was an athlete. So it's like a competitive thing too. It's like, how good can I get at this thing? And so that's that's been a driving factor in my desire to do this and continue on with it the way that I have. Um, but I I was never I think my first interview with Cash I said like like a thousand times. You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And so it's just over time I'm getting a little bit better and I see myself getting better. Um, and I edit episodes myself and I see 
my my editing skills progress and like the show is becoming a little bit more consistent in terms of the sound quality and stuff like that. So that's powerful stuff, you know. Right. Um, that's really powerful stuff. Um, Throughout my journey, um, living with depression um, and living through it, for me, certain practices that I've adopted to maintain a healthy lifestyle is working out. Um, going to therapy and just kind of being active. I've, I've learned like if I stay by myself and isolate myself for too long, which I do like doing because I am very lazy at some at times. And like we said earlier in the podcast, it takes a lot of energy to just even have a conversation. Get with out, yeah. And um, I was curious, what what practices have you adopted into your lifestyle to maintain a healthy healthy mind? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, it's funny. Today was the first time I actually worked out. Really worked out and. In a few months, oh, wow. you know, I coach. So, like during the basketball season, I'm just like, I'm in a gym, but I'm I'm instructing. I'm not doing anything, you know. Uh, and I play, but I still try to play basketball like once or twice a week. So, playing basketball is a form of therapy. It's a place where I could be upset or angry or, um, uh, for lack of a better term, just a dick, and it's okay. That's like a space for me to be that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like to I, I like to work out today. I, I got on a treadmill. I ran a couple miles on a treadmill. I Dope. lifted a little weights. Um, so working out is really essential. I feel best when I'm exercising emotionally. Um, and I, as I sat down here today, I'm like, damn, my body a little tired. But I feel <laughs> I, my body is tired, and I'm gonna be tired tonight. I'm gonna sleep well, but I feel good as shit right now. That's the best part about working out is the sleep. After. Yeah, and so I'm. Working out is important. Um, obviously, going to therapy. Um, I try to get to therapy once a week. Sometimes I go twice a week. Uh, sometimes I don't make it to therapy in a week. And those weeks, I have to remind myself that I got to get there and prioritize that. Because life can move really quickly and you could just be like, no, nah, I got to do this. I got to go to this meeting. I got to do this recording. I got to edit this episode. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I got to have dinner with like this friend that's in town that I haven't seen. So, just prioritizing therapy. Uh, I see my psychiatrist. I take medication um, to treat my bipolar. I have. Um, I like talking about medication too because I think it's like that's also that's the other layer of things that hasn't been normalized. And I and from my perception of medication, and I don't I don't take medication. This is just me. This is just my thought process on medication. I kind of feel like it heightens it a bit. I into depression a bit. I feel like it's like not a healthy vice or I guess supplement to cure. It doesn't cure you. So I don't know what it really, like what does it do for you? I It's a hard thing for me to really say. Um, I think the first thing with medication is you have to keep an open mind. Okay. You're dealing with mental health. You have to keep an open mind. So just like you have to keep an open mind with therapy, you have to keep an open mind with the other um, therapeutic aspects or um, methods for treating whatever it is you have. Um, and so my take on it is like I lived 31 years of my life without taking any medication at all. And I, I guess I could say I was fine, but I did end up in a hospital, Yeah, you know. Um, so I obviously wasn't that okay. Um, but I think like, I think the thing, this is great. I think the medication, like what you're saying, I think is true if you come off of it. Mm. 
or if you're not consistent with taking it. Yeah, because you can become, like with anything, I guess, like resistant to it. Resistant or dependent on it. Yeah. It's like if you take Double heroin, sword, yeah. right? You take heroin, you're like, oh, fuck, I got I to gotta get another hit. But, um, yeah, so I guess in some ways you could be dependent on it. I haven't felt dependent on it. And initially I was very, I felt very, very, very self-conscious about taking medication. People that took medication where I grew up and how I grew up was like fucking, you know, they were the most ostracized kids on the block. Oh, he's on meds, you yeah. know? He ain't take his medication today. Um, and, you know, I never saw myself as that as a kid. Um, and so now it's just part of my daily practice. Hmm. It's literally part of my daily practice. So much so that it hasn't become... It's like like I get up in the morning, I brush my teeth. It's it's in that routine now. It's like a routine. Yeah. Um, and so in some ways, I'm taking it very mindlessly. Some t- in some ways, I take it very mindlessly. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to do this. Mm. Just like I'm supposed to brush my teeth. Um, your teeth are dependent on toothpaste and brushing. Like, you know, I mean, we can we can justify why we do or why we don't do certain things in our lives. Um, I think the most important thing is to keep an open mind about about treatment of all kinds. Yeah. Um, and medication just happens to be one of the um, ways in which I treat my depression and deal with my depression. Um, so like working out, uh, sticking to my meds, as the weather gets nicer, walking a lot. Right. Walking is like, man... Yo, I never realized how much of a therapy walking is, man. Like with no destination too. Sometimes no destination. You know, my therapist is in the Upper West Side in Central Park. So, you know, a lot of days I'll come out of my therapist and my psychologist and I'll I'll just I always walk. I walk through the park. Sometimes I find myself going all the way from Upper West Side all the way down to fucking Union Square, like wherever. Like I, I walk a long way. And in that time, I could talk to friends. People don't talk on the phone anymore. You know, I could call yeah. my call my best friend down in New Orleans. We could talk for a little bit. Just see and people watch. I'm not on the phone. You yeah. know, I might might listen to some music. Uh, there's so many things, uh, so much stimuli coming in when you're walking um, that it forces you not to be in your own head. For sure. You know. Yeah. And so I have to remind myself of that. Uh, I like to run. I don't like to run, but I do like to run. What do you mean? So, like, I hate the process and the monotony of running, Mm -hmm. but I do find running to be very meditative. Right. And so it takes a lot from me to get me there to do it. But once I'm doing it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this shit is – I'm, like, zenned out right now. Yeah. Because that's the only thing I'm focused on. And I'm, like, letting all of these endorphins out. Um, so running, taking my medication, playing hoops, um, you know, talking to my friends, going to therapy. I see my psychiatrist. My psychiatrist and I have, like, I see him, like, once a month. Yeah. And in those one like once a month sessions, we actually do psychotherapy. 
So it's not just like, yo, here's like a script for your medication. And I think that is a huge, huge, huge factor. Like if you're getting medication from somewhere or from someone, from a psychiatrist, right. you should also be see- getting psychotherapy from that psychiatrist. I think the, the same person. Yeah. I think the relationship between psychotherapy and psychiatry is like so under, like just underestimated, underappreciated. Like people don't understand the like importance of it. Um, it's important for the person giving medication to know like what's going on in your life, you know. Um, so I see my psychiatrist once a month, but I see my psychologist once a month, once a week. Yeah. So I'm I get like I'm getting to speak to two people. How many people get to t- speak to two people? Is it is it a level of trust you feel he needs to be built? Like for sure, um, for sure. Um, I trust my psychologist. Like through and th- like through and through, you know. I was in a hospital. I talked to him every day, and um, I'll never forget what he told me. I was in a hospital. I was like, I was fucking broken. I was like, I can't believe I'm in this psychiatric unit, and like people were bugging out. Like I'm like, all right, I might be seven thirty, but I'm really with the seven thirties right now, you know. Yeah. And um, and I was kind of broken by that. I was like, how the hell did I end up here? I, like, ended up here. And I was talking to my psychologist about it. And I I remember getting really emotional on the phone. And he was like, you got to look at it like this. You got to look at this as a a win, as a victory. He's like, you made it to the hospital. Mm. He said, you could have ended up like your brother. Could have ended up like your mother. Could have ended up like your father. That's right. Could have ended up like so many people in your life that you that you know um he's like but you made it to hospital that's a win you gotta look at this as like a victory and i'll never forget that you know um so for anybody out there that makes it to the hospital like look at that as a i hated that shit but and i don't think the hospital is necessarily it stabilizes you i think it's the perception of the hospital that kind of makes people feel like it's a loss or like there's something wrong with them and they're I guess tainted or something like that. I don't know. Like they feel like if they're they're there, they feel like there's something wrong with them and they need to be there. But it's yeah. I mean, you, there's something wrong. With, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. But like, but like, I guess the bigger picture is like you're still here. Like you're still alive. You still have another day. Right. Your boat. So right. Um. But yeah, I mean, I hated the hospital, man. Friday, I, I could talk to you about that. That shit is crazy. Um, there's like a routine or something you had to follow in the hospital. Yeah, man. Like, bro. This could be like a whole episode in itself, but I got there on a Friday night, man, and they put you in like this uh, emergency psychiatric intake unit. And it's just like people that just came in, everybody that just came in is down there and they're like trying to figure out where they're going to house you in the hospital and all this shit, right? And um, I'm there. <laughs> I'll never forget this shit, man. There's one dude in there. He's like, must be 60-something. And he's talking mad shit to himself. He's like talking shit to people in the in the, in the unit. He's like, I wish some, I wish a motherfucker would. Like, he's like, he's really going there. And he's just like looking for a fight, you know? But he really, he was looking for a fight. But he, I don't want to say he didn't really want to fight. But 
like he would have got his ass beat. You know, he's like a little older, like. Yeah. Um. So I was just looking at him like, man, what the fuck? Where am I? There was another dude. Uh, I'll never forget this. I was laying down. They had these like little cots, man. It's fucking. It being in a hospital can be dehumanizing. I will say that. Um, I had these little cots. All of a sudden, I hear something splattering on the floor, and all I hear the nurse say is, "That that's not the bathroom. That's not the bathroom." And like, I turn and there's this dude. He's like zombified, just like pissing on the floor. Shit. And I'm like, "What the? Where the fuck am I?" That was my. Welcome to the hospital moment. God, that man. was like my first couple hours in the hospital. Um, and so that was crazy. And then, and then when I got to the actual unit, it, it was crazy, man. I saw and heard things that I haven't seen and heard, you know. And, you know, a lot of people that are in there are like homeless, you know, people. Yeah. A lot of our, a lot of the city population, a lot of people that are mentally ill, most, most vulnerable in that, in that domain are, are in fact homeless. So it's like, how are we treating the people in our society that, that can't do anything for themselves? Right. Did you, did you feel like you would maybe end up like them or did you like ever lose hope at any point that you would ever leave those hospital doors? Or did you feel like a, a sense of like motivation seeing what you don't want to be? In that? I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it a buck with you, man. I felt like I was in prison in that hospital, and I told my therapist that he was like, "You nah, you need to chill." Like he's like, "I've seen prison, and and rightfully so, right?" Right. But I was essentially like I want to say caged in, but I was locked into a certain space, and there was rules I had to follow, and. There was a time I had to get up and, you know, all these things. Uh, seeing a lot of those people um, in that space, yeah, I was like, yeah, I don't want to be like this. I was definitely the highest functioning person in the unit that I was in. Hmm. So, like, I was like, me, I'm, I'm going to give you an example. I'm trying to have conversation with the nurse like, nurse, I need, like, I can't be in this room with this homeless dude. He smells. He's, like, piss everywhere. Yeah. And they, like, they, like, I'll never forget, like, the weekend nurses are the worst. The weekend nurses in there, and they should, they're, like, looking at me, like, you, you just as crazy as they are. Like, you ain't different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was, it's just funny to look back on. I can laugh about a lot of these experiences now. Um, but I also, it gave me a, crazy newfound perspective and appreciation for people that work with uh homeless and mentally ill populations uh it gave me a, a completely new perception and um compassion for people that are really severely mentally ill mm. um and so as i as i noted earlier when my when my childhood friend who had schizophrenia killed his mom it was very triggering for me in that way cuz i the level of compassion and empathy that I have for that is so much greater than it ever was because of the experience I had in the hospital yeah, and the way in which he was portrayed in what happened was like this ruthless kind of deranged person. But I was like, you guys don't really know how sick he was. Um, and so that was hard. Um, that was really hard. Why do you think there's like, 
And I want to get back to talking about therapists in a second, but why do you think like um, mentally ill people are like tossed to the wayside most of the time? Like, why do you think there's not like a certain like, I mean, there are facilities for these people, of course, but why do you think they're not really appreciated and really helped as much as we should be? I mean, you were on the inside. You saw these people. Some of those people you were with are probably still there, right? Like, do, do, you, do you think there's a specific reason why these people's lives aren't being saved or appreciated? He just got me thinking about something from the hospital, but yeah, um, I think that people don't kind of what we were talking about before. Like people don't understand something; they want to be as far away from it as possible. Right. Um, it makes them uncomfortable. Um, I also think that people that are oftentimes in those situations are are the most vulnerable people that we have in our society. And I'm not just talking about mental health stuff. I'm talking about um, they are the least supported. They don't have they don't have family. Their family has sort of run away from them. They don't have money. They don't have job. They don't have a career. Like, I, I'm just lucky enough to be in a position to, when I left the hospital, I knew I was going back to my job. Yeah, I knew I was, you know, I had a house. I was going back to my house. Like, you know, I had a place to live. Like, so many people, like, leave the hospital. They don't have any of that. They don't have a job. They don't have a house. They don't have family. They don't have friends. It's like, what the fuck do they have? Right. And so I think the amount of intensive support that people who are severely mentally ill have it sort of outruns what our society is willing to give them, you know? And so um, we're like, yeah, you could have this bed and we'll give you this medication, but we can't really help your social life or we really can't really, you're not fit for a career or a job or something like, you know what I mean? And so there's a lot of that, man. And I think, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast today. I've been listening to a lot of Mike Tyson, man. But um, very wise dude. Yeah, he had um, Freeway Freeway Ricky Ross on his um, on his podcast. The OG Rick Ross. Yeah. And um, Rick Ross was talking about like if he had a tr- Mike Tyson was like, what, what would you do if you had a trillion dollars? He was like, I would build a uh, like a like a complex for people to live. People that are homeless. He's like, the people that are most vulnerable are a homeless population, and a lot of people that are homeless are have mental health issues, right? Mm-hmm. And so he said, I have psychiatrists there. I have, like, and I was like, yo, in the perfect, like, utopian sort of world of dealing with homeless population and mental health conditions, like, that is how we would approach it, you know? There'd be a little bit more of, like, a holistic and, and um, compassionate, sort of approach one of the nurse assistants there was two nurse assistants that really fucking really took care of me at the hospital um really really took care of me man they were amazing Hmm. one jamaican nurse assistant and another one from grenada um miss foster um but one of the i said why do you do this and why you treat approach this this work the way that you do and she said, because I, I want people, I want to treat these, I want to treat you guys and people that are here how I would want somebody to treat my own 
if they were in your shoes. Mm. And that was like such a powerful moment for me. Yeah. I left the hospital. I was like, yeah, I have an obligation to like really not only have these conversations, but also like pay for it. Yeah. And treat, treat this with like a real human touch, you know, right. approach it with that sort of approach. So I think that's missing, right? We, our society is obsessed with othering. Mm-hmm. Right. And the current climate of our country doesn't really help much with that. Right. So you're black, you're Mexican, you're this, you're that, you're mentally Ill. like, you know, it's like, oh, you're, you're the other kind of person or being. So therefore we don't value you as much. And I think that's, that's the, that's at the core of the issue surrounding like mental illness and homelessness and, and all that stuff. Lack of empathy. Yeah, man. I want to get back into therapy though. Um, first of all, my experience with therapy was very, very like, I was so resistant to it because I always felt like I was paying someone to care. Uh, one of my first experiences with therapy, I was with this Indian guy, and he wouldn't even look me in my eyes when I was speaking to him. He would just have his little clipboard writing shit down, and that was like years ago. So when I found my – actually, my co-host, CR, he is a therapist. We have the same therapist. He introduced me to her, and now I go to her, um, Marie. She's great. Um, and I don't feel that with her. And one of our conversations uh, – one of the topics that keeps coming up in our sessions is regret. I um, – I don't know why. I could probably think of a few reasons why, but my, my, my relationship with my mother and my grandmother, it's just not as close as it should be. They've done everything for me. They raised me. I am who I am today because of them. But for some reason, I'm just really resistant to the idea of, I think, kind of connecting with them on another level and actually spending time. And I've been feeling really regretful of not of how much time I wasted not spending time with them. And as people get older, I've been having conversations with my grandmother about her death. And she's coming up to me and talking to me about the will and stuff like that. And it's making me really, really upset. And it's like I'm looking back on my life and I don't have many moments with them. And I'm feeling very regretful. And going back to your uh, conversation earlier in the podcast about your brother and how you guys don't have a connection like that. Do you think you'll start to experience some form of regret eventually by not having that stable relationship? Like when everything's all said and done, would you be okay with not having this connection forever? Or would you eventually want to start to rebuild that? I don't think I ever want to rebuild it. Hmm. And I know that sounds kind of crazy and harsh. Um, I don't think I ever want to rebuild it. And I think regret, I've tried not to be a very regretful person. Um, And so what happens in my life and the actions and decisions I make, I try to try to live with them and try to live by them Um, as much as I can. Not always. Um, but, but that, you know, repairing that relationship, repairing relationships with other family members, um, I don't really, I don't really have a hope of doing that. Hmm. Um, in an ideal world that would happen. Um, but I also know that that's not what's healthy for me. Right. And I have to do... I was having a conversation with someone, a, a colleague of mine about this today, but like, cause she's going through a lot of stuff, but you have to try to eliminate toxicity from your life as much as possible. 
especially if it if it's if it negatively affects you, which more times than not does. You can only your capacity for that is only so much, right? Yeah. And so the way I look at it is and I heard this thing to the other day on Mike Tyson podcast again. And I was like, yeah, I start listening to him now. Yo, I was like, this is real. Um, but this this guess he had on Jim Graves, a uh, journalist, sports journalist, he asked, he said, you know, um, it was something about helping people, and he said um, something along the lines like, if you can help people, you should help them. But if you can't, hope that they understand, mm. and. I just, that's, that, I don't have regrets and I don't have hopes of like what the relationships can be, but I, I hope that they understand and they might never, my brother might never understand and that's fine. Um, you know, he might, he might never understand, but I think somewhere in his own conscious, he, he gets it and he understands and, um, that's fair. I mean, you're putting yourself, first and i feel i guess in my case like i'm just I, i'm doing that but i feel i just i i don't want the what ifs like like what if we did this or like um i wish we did like i really don't want those moments and unlike you i do acknowledge the time i acknowledge time i acknowledge the invisible clock that we're all on i, I try to move every day like it's my last as much as i can i try to do as much as i can um, cause I feel like I wasted so much time. Like from the years of like 2010, when I graduated high school to like 2016, I was depressed. I don't, me- I really have no memory of those days. In those days. And yeah, I read that depression causes memory loss and I, it's like a blackout. And I feel like during that time I've could have been more productive and more present in my family's lives. And now I feel like, like I'm kind of just now trying to catch up to them and towards the end of their lives. And it just like freaks me out and I just don't want any regrets. Well, the, the the there's a couple ways I look at this um, from my perspective. So much of my life was b- built on survival mm. for myself. I had to survive. Like, I came out as a kid, six, seven years old, I had to survive. There's so many things I had to survive. I had to survive both my parents being addicted to crack. I had to survive living in poverty and, and living in homeless shelters. I had to, you know, I had to survive, like, not having food on the table at times. You know, these are all things I had to survive. So um, in some ways, when I think about the relationships that are that negatively affect me, uh, it's a matter of my own survival. It's like, no, I, I can't do that because I have to do what's right for me. And so I care immensely about people and... Anybody that knows me knows I'm like one of the more giving people. Mm. Um, I give my time a lot, um, especially to my kids, my my students, um, kids that play basketball for me. Um, and so I never get caught up in that. I never get caught up. And when I get caught up in the guilt, I think about all the stuff I do do. Right. And I have to remind myself of that. And so... I, I, I have to remind myself that my life was built on surviving, and this is one element of my survival. It's not having those remorse. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing is like, as I was saying earlier, we 
I didn't really ask for a lot of this, right? And so I'm just trying to make lemonade with lemons. Yeah. And and there's no there's nothing wrong with that. And so in terms of like having regrets and stuff like that, it's hard for me to to think about it that way. Cuz I think also, right? If you have regrets, then <clears throat> what you're suggesting is that everything that's happened to you in your life, you're not particularly necessarily comfortable with. You don't feel fulfilled. Right. And so then that becomes that's a that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. Um, but also in terms of like having moments where you feel like like what ifs and all this other stuff in the same way in which I had to survive so many things. The what if stuff doesn't really hit me the same way. I have those thoughts, but you got to understand, like I lost my dad when I was 13 and uh, my mom was largely absent from my life from the age of. 15 to when she died when I was 30. So the what ifs aren't really there in the same way because I, it's almost like I kind of got that out. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about my relationship with my brother or anybody for that matter, it's not about what if it's just like, okay, well, what, what did we have? And how can I try to have the most sort of positive um, thoughts and reflections on those moments. Um, because what if is like, you don't know what would happen. You don't, yeah. Then what if you're living on the presumption that things would be positive? That's like a, a yearning for a positive thing, but it might not be that way. Well, the thing is, I don't have even a good or bad memory, so I just ha- I just want that tangible memory to have in the back of my head, and I don't have that. And I feel like... I should. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 really. I just feel like I've been like so selfish. Like I feel like I just let myself get trapped in that that darkness and depression so long, and that introverted nature I have. Like I just feel like I let it get the best of me and take away time, you know. And then and it's funny on the flip side; of that, it took away time, but that's all I acknowledge now. So, but what do you feel selfish about? Like, what's the root of how, like, for example, like, if you had to, like, look at yourself from the outside in, like, what is selfish or what has been selfish about you? I feel like I could have been, I don't know, like, the the, the depression, I feel, it's all, in my mind, depression is a choice. You're choosing to indulge in that. So you're making that choice to take away from something else. So I feel if I made, if I was more, if I was stronger, I could have been able to make the right choice and have a healthy relationship with my family. And I feel like I just made the wrong decisions every time. I feel like I just let myself sit in it and didn't fight. So I I feel I, maybe that's not selfish. I just felt weak, I guess. But you weren't fighting for who? For them. That's what you're saying. Right. You could also look at it on the flip side. Maybe they didn't fight for you. That's true as well. You know? Yeah. And so back to my point, you're like, you're taking lemons and you're making lemonade. Right. You're doing, you're doing what you can do, you know? You're not doing, there's no right way, man. Yeah, yeah. There's no, you know, everybody's running their own race and everybody will cross the finish line the way that they cross the finish line. And um, it's important. I, I guess my hope for you, and this is like getting like real, like whatever, but... 
my hope for you would be that like you don't beat yourself up about that stuff as much because there are a lot of factors that come into play mm. and multiple things can be true you know yeah. it's not the onus isn't all on you to fight through and figure a way to work your work through your depression with the with your family um that's that can be true that's part of it right that's part of the equation but there's so many other elements and parts of the equation i think that's like i feel like that's one thing i really took from my childhood like i mentioned earlier in the podcast like the examples i've seen of like love and like family i've only seen through television like sensationalized shit so i feel like maybe that's why i have that guilt because i feel like i should be trying to live up to something like that have that perfect family and shit like that or the 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 idea of what we were talking about earlier which is like your mom and your dad and your grandpa, like, everybody's supposed to be held on a pedestal. Right. And, like, I, I think the way I like to think about it, and, you know, I know my parents, my parents love me, right? Um, they love me in the way that they love me. Um, was it right? No. Um, or no, I wouldn't say was it right, but was it what I, what I had hoped for, what, what I would hope for for myself? No, right? Um, I felt like I was deprived in a lot of ways, but they did what they could do within the context of who they were. And so I, I like to think of it like everybody's like doing their best. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's doing it. Nobody's perfect. And you'll work through, everybody will work through things in their, in their different ways, you know, Mm -hmm. and nobody can like really fault fault you or you know you can't fault your mom or your grandmother or whatnot but i i think it's totally natural to have that feeling though too right it's like you want it's what you see like you said you sensationalize it's like what you see ah this is what the fucking brady bunch like this is what it's (laughs) supposed to be right and it's like maybe not the brady bunch but like fresh um, prince family fresh prince or some shit you know Moesha, I don't know. Good times. I don't know. But yeah, I, I'm trying not to beat myself up. But it like actually ties into a quote. But I, I, I'm going to get us out of here. We, we ran out of water. But I got a few more questions. No, I'm, I'm, let's go, man. I'm, I'm here. Uh, there's a quote by Janelle Monet. Uh, she was winning some award or some shit like that. And she said, the most difficult trail to blaze is the one that takes us inside who we are. And, um, and after I heard her say that, that's when I really had this reflective moment of like, I, there are some things I need to work on to become my higher self and take what I'm doing to another a next level. You mentioned earlier you're a competitive individual, so I'm curious if you could look inside yourself for a second. What are some things that you need to really change, work on, or improve on in order to take yourself to another level where you'll be able to compete with other people on higher levels, podcasting-wise, maybe career-wise, whatever? I think I need to listen more. Um I think I need to listen more. I think I need to have um, uh, demonstrate more empathy. I think I have it internally, but I don't always express it. Hmm. Um, this is just day to day happening. Like podcasts, you see one element or one side of me that I'm willing to show, you right. know. But I'm thinking about on the day to day and the back and behind the scenes, like. Uh, I I need to listen more. I need to to show and demonstrate more compassion. Um, I need to show that people are valued 
I need to demonstrate to people that they're valued. Mm. Um, both people that I love and people that I interact with on a day to day. And there are times that I do, there are moments that I do. You know, I was thinking about on the way over here, I like popped into one of these stores. I was trying to buy some stuff for my little brother and this dude, they didn't have the stuff in there. And this dude was in here. He's like, yo, I'm, fr- I'm from the South. Like, I, he's like, I'm just start working. I don't know what, where's, what and like whatever whatever i was like we from the south he's like st louis like you know and we talk and he's like yeah i'm here to do music and i was like yeah well, like what's your gram like you know and i like you know i hit him on his gram and i look at that as a form of giving like i'm giving my time i'm giving my energy i'm giving like positive fields and i feel like i could i feel like i should do that more and i do it a lot already but i still feel like i should do it more um and i feel like that that's something I'm competitive about. Giving time, giving time, and, and and giving positive, just giving positive energy, giving, um, showing people love. Um, Got to be careful who you give that energy to, because a lot of people aren't worthy of it, and then they'll take advantage of it at times. No, one hundred percent. But I, I'm thinking about like on a day to day interaction. Like you never know what you might do. Or what you might say and how that could change somebody's day or change somebody's life. Anything as simple as how are you doing? And I always I always try to keep that keep that perspective. Like that brother that I was talking to, I, I was just starting I always try to put myself in other people's shoes. I'm like, yo, this guy's from St. Louis, he never been in New York, he's trying to learn the customs in New York. I was like, yo, this dude must be mad stressed out. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna show him he's just doing his job, you know, he's working in retail. I'm like there's something I, there's something in you I see that I can relate to, and I I want I wanted to demonstrate some some compassion, some love for that. So I th- I, th- I and listening is like the biggest thing. Yeah. I really wanna, um, and I've really been pushing myself to become a better listener, and um, I think yeah, I think listening, I think. Um, being, you know, if I'm being completely a uh, hundred, I think being better with finances. Same, me too. And I think part of that is, I think about this all the time, man. But I think when you grow up poor, um, and you grow up in the depths of poverty that I've actually had to experience for myself, uh, you never want to tell yourself no. Right. You have people tell you tell you no your whole life. Say, Ma, can I get this candy bar? No, you can't get that. I don't got money for that. Mm. Can I get these Jordans? No, we don't got money for that. Um, You know, and so in a lot of ways, I look at it like, yo, I just want to treat myself the best. There's a level of like uh, peace I get from purchasing stuff for myself. Yeah, it's a level of peace, but also like. There's a level for me that's like no one in my life growing up was able to just be like, you know what? We're going to go do this or we're going to go, uh, you know, we were buying the fucking knockoff cheese and, you know, <laughs> going to like welfare offices. Like, I, I don't want to deal with that shit anymore. Like, my greatest fear is like being in poverty. Yeah. Again. And in New York, is you'll get there faster than you probably expect. Right. And so 
that's my greatest fear. I'm not fearful of a lot of things. I think being in extreme poverty and going to prison um, or being locked in. Like, I, for some reason lately, like, when, I, when I'm really in a weird-ass place, I, I think about being locked in places. Like in a fucking crowded subway or in a in a prison cell, like like the idea of like bars close, closing me into like a very small confined place, that is fucking bugs me out. Um, and so I think about all these things, um, but like being poor is like one of the biggest things. I'm, I I want to be better with money, um, and yeah, yeah. It's like one of the big things for me. Getting in soon with money is very, uh, I guess, being financially illiterate, like illiterate, illiterate, whatever. Like being good with your money is very, very hard. Like when you just, I always look at things like, I want to buy. Like, um, I always look at them as like I'll never have another opportunity to get them again. And that's the excuse I get myself. Like, oh, this could sell out next week. I'll never have another chance to get this, and then I'll just spend it. And then, in like in few a few months, I'll still see it on Amazon. And it's like, was it really see it on this? sale? Like yeah, that. Like, yeah. fuck, I spent two hundred. I could have got it for one twenty five. Yeah, um, stupid of me. No, but yeah, I um, I think there's a there's a syndrome. I don't know what it is, but. There's some syndrome of like if you grow up poor and you're black, particularly black, right. it's like you don't wanna. I felt really self conscious as a kid not having what some of my other friends had, so I never want to feel that way. Yeah, I never want to be like, yo, you got the new thing and I don't have the new. Like you know, it's not even a competition as much as it's like, it's a validation that I'm out of the fucking misery that I was once in. Right. It's just yeah. further proof that you're out. Right, exactly. Right. And that is just deep in itself, you know? Yeah. Um, do you think you'll ever get to a point where you just stop wanting? Like, if it seems like if you're going to continue on that path, you'll just always want and you, maybe you'll never be satisfied. Yeah, I mean, what is satisfaction? You know? Like, I mean, the way in which we grow up in our, in our country, we're taught, we're taught not to be satisfied. That's like capitalism. I guess you make a hundred dollars, you gotta make two hundred. Yeah, I mean, you'll never stop working. Like you'll never reach a level where you're just good. But if you just want and want and want, like when is that? When is the time for happiness come? I mean, you may feel like if like you're tricking yourself, thinking all the things you're getting and you're wanting will make you happy. But will will that ever stop? Like. Maybe I'm not articulating what I'm saying. No, well, I, 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 I get what you're saying. I don't know if it stops. Um, I really don't know if it stops. I know that. I know that what it felt like to want and not have. That's what I know. Mm -hmm. um, and that's 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 the thing that stopped. You know, that's actually the thing that stopped. Um, and now I'm in like a decent enough position where I can do some things for myself and take some trips and, and do things like that, that I was never in a position to, to do before. Um, 
I remember we used to go down to Virginia when I was a kid. I had family down there. We used to fucking take the, like, Greyhound. I'm like, oh, man, I got to be on this Greyhound for 10 hours. <laughs> it's like, are you, like, you know, I can't imagine. I would, like, never take a Greyhound right now. I'm like, fuck that. I'm not taking the bus. Because <laughs> it's, it's almost like a... It's almost like I have PTSD from that shit. Like, shit. it's like, it just reminds me of like being poor and like having to take the bus. And anything that reminds me of being poor, I have like some PTSD from. It's funny. This is my second to last question. Speaking about PTSD, I feel like I really, I feel like maybe all of us as black people collectively have like developed a form of PTSD, seeing these examples of young black brothers and sisters getting murdered by police and just being racially profiled and all this shit like that. And um, I saw a video yesterday that like sent shivers down my spine. But like the taser video, uh, I think it happened to Canarsie, the Brooklyn, the yeah, Brooklyn. yeah, yeah, that shit was wild. Man. Hearing him scream just like really that shit was freaked wild. me the fuck out. And like, uh, I, I, I'm that kind of stuff. Like the police on black male crime or black people, like kids getting fucked up in schools. Like, it's almost like so, I'm like desensitized from it now. It's like I see it and I'm like. Here we go again. Yeah, it's like, oh, here we go again. But at the same time, like, today I was thinking, I watched that, that same video with the dude getting tased and I was like. Yo, what's different about that guy and me? That was my thought. Mm. Like, we always talk about, yo, that could be me. That could have been me. Like, yo, I'm black. That guy's black. Like, but like, really, at the core, like, what is different? Why am I able to walk down the street and not have that experience happen to me? And he isn't. And I like to think, I like to liken it to or attribute that to just circles you're in. Like, I, I, don't, I don't live in Canarsie, you know? Um, I, I can speak a certain way. You know, the thing I will say this is a police, the police, unless they some real bold motherfuckers, yeah. they don't like, they're actually afraid of encounters with black people where black people are composed and black people can articulate themselves. Right, but you can't gauge someone how they're able to articulate themselves, how they're dressed. Like I feel like, it, I don't think it's... No, not, not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like if a police officer approached me about anything and I can be composed and articulate and have some level of defense or social capital. You're right. Or demonstrate that I have social capital. Education. I'm a teacher. Or, you know, I'm not saying this is me, but, like, my wife works for the city and, you know, my wife works for the DEA or whatever the case is. Like, people, like police are afraid of that shit. My father's a lawyer. Like, you know, things are bold, right? Right. Things. Are, I'm not saying it eliminates the issues that we're having, but I do think when we carry ourselves in certain ways, um, and I'm by no means am I saying that like police were justifying like that video. That's not what I'm saying at all. Right. But I think being a police officer, there's so much hysteria in that. Working in law enforcement, 
that when we're hysterical, it triggers them. It triggers them. Yeah. And so we have to be very careful and cognizant of that, you know? And Damn, I never thought about that. it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard not to, to, to get hysterical, right? Because what do we see? Especially when you're, you know you're innocent, but you feel, yeah. What do we see? We see the thing that we saw last night. Right. We see the thing, you know, we see the stuff with Tamir Rice. We see the thing, you know, Michael. Like, we could go on and on and on. These, and this shit's been happening forever. Like, go back to Watts in the 60s. Like, we could go on and on and on and on and on. But the point I'm making is, like, when, when we have those encounters, when we get hysterical, they get hysterical. And their hysteria is rooted in acts of and demonstrations of power. And the power they have is weaponry. The power they have is um, the institution. Mm-hmm. They're they're on the side of uh, of the very. They're on the side of the government, right? Police of the government's gang. So they're like keeping order. So we have to keep in mind, we have to keep all that stuff in mind. The government's never really worked in our favor as a people, um, ever, Mm. ever, even today, you know? And so I think we have to like keep that in mind. I try to keep, I really try to keep that in mind. Like our, in those moments, our hysteria mixed with their hysteria is not a it's not a good concoction. Yeah. It's chaos. Yeah. Um, and if you saw that video, like that dude, that kid, rightfully so, that that dude had like a a really like I wouldn't say strong reaction, but he was like, "What the fuck? Like, why? You know, like, why are you like? I didn't do anything. Like, why? Are you, like, you know." Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like. It's such a hard place to get to because of so much shit that's happened to us that we see. But what happens if we like stoic as fuck? And we're like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what happens if we could be? Um, but then it begs the question: Like, why the fuck do we have to be that way? Yeah, we we know we're not doing anything. Why are you coming up to me? Like, right? But I I feel it's it's hard to maintain your composure <laughs> in those situations. No, I'm especially, saying especially you've never even been through it. I'm saying it. I'm saying it as somebody that hasn't had that type of experience. I've had negative interactions with police, yeah, yeah. but not like that, you know. And so, um, and I think me being educated and maybe speaking a little bit more, like, um, I don't want to say articulated, but like me being educated, I've probably been a little more sly with police at times, mm. and I've been like, "Yo, like, no, this is like, this is what it is." I know, like. I know, like I, for lack of a better term, I know my rights. Like you, you know, you can't do that. Yeah. Um. And they don't like that either. It's 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 complex. It's, it's very layered. It's very layered, and I, I'll say there is there's no right there's no right way. Um, I would say there's no right perspective. Um, on either side, I would just hope that, um, police treat. Everybody, not just black people, but everybody, but especially black people, the same way that they would want 
their kid to be treated or their son or their daughter or their mother or their father. Um, what happens when we, we have compassion to deal with those types of situations? Right. The problem is, I, I could go on and on and on about this, but the problem is too, is like police aren't fucking trained, man. Like it's easier to become a cop in New York City than it is to become a fireman. It's actually, it might even be easier to become a cop in New York City than it is to become a teacher. I don't know. I didn't know that. I just, but maybe because they're in higher demand. It's, it's easy. Their training process is easier because they need more. But is it, but why, but that's a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. But I'm, I'm saying that's maybe that's one reason why they would probably, that's the case. They're not getting training. They're getting something else. It's not, they're not being trained to, to, be equipped to deal with people in the types of situations that they're forced to deal with people. They're dealing with mentally ill people. They're not equipped to do that. They're dealing with people that have been raped. They're not equipped to deal with that. Like, there's so much shit that police officers deal with on a day-to-day basis they're not equipped to deal with. How do you go into a... I'm I'm going on a tangent now, but, like, how do you go into a community like Canarsie and you've never really had to experience a community like Canarsie? You never had to go to Brownsville. You never had to go to uh, East New York. You've never... Right? And you've never been in these types of situations. And I don't want to project and generalize right now, but, like, who are the kind of people that become cops? A A lot of people that become cops are, you know, you look at the police force, a lot of these people grew up in Long Island or grew up in like other pla- like other places where they they not in the community, right? So if we're really trying to do right by communities, like the police officers should be coming from the community. Yeah. We don't do that though. We'll put all these ads up for like new police officers to to join the force, but we're not targeting like Building relationships in communities to have those people become police officers in those communities. The background check should go further back. It should go deeper. Yeah, like if you, for example, for for a teacher, right, like myself, uh, a school would want to have, if I'm teaching in a school uh, in Brownsville, a school in Brownsville would probably want to have a teacher that's from that area that knows that area that knows that experience above somebody that like grew up in fucking rural Pennsylvania or you know suburb of Chicago or something like that mm-hmm. right why because that person understands that experience they can relate to that experience they know the, the sort of cultural norms and expectations of that environment and what we have is a lot of pe- police officers go in these places and they go in these communities and they don't really have a context to work with. Right. They have the context they have to work with is what's happened historically in the community. There's been a lot of crime here. Right? So if you're going in with that you're immediately going into a situation with an implicit bias. Right. I actually think we're over our time, but oh, um my bad. You, you have know, one more question? Uh I guess the very last one was what is this all for? Like the seven thirty podcast, your life as a whole going forward into the next decade. Like, what is your ultimate goal with all this? Oh man, that's a great question, and I have I have it for you. Um, my ultimate goal with seven thirty is to, to obviously continue the project and continue the dialogue surrounding um, mental health issues, how they intersect with our culture. Um, but I would, 
ultimately like to um and I wouldn't say this is the like the the tip of the iceberg for me but I want to particularly um I don't want to say inspirational speeches but I want to give talks um particularly I want to be a public speaker for athletes college mm-hmm. athletes college and high school athletes um and my thinking behind that is I look back on my experience. My first episode I really had was when I was in college, um, my junior year of college. And I – basketball always – basketball drove me. So I always had this like – I always had a, a new season to look forward to, a new off season to train for ever since I was a little kid, right? And so – when basketball ended for me, I, I, that was the first time I really hit real depression. Real, I had a real episode then. But in addition to that, basketball like masks and being an athlete masks so much shit for me. It masked everything. I didn't really have to show emotion. The emotion I had to show was like being tough and being stronger and being faster like than the next guy. But I didn't have to like really come to terms with my own emotional capacity or uh limitations. Um or social emotional. I, I didn't have to learn anything social socially or emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um all I had to do was play basketball uh and be a and be a student. And so ideally I, I, I looking down the line five years, ten years, I wanna be a public speaker. I want to speak to athletes across sports um, in high school and in, in college, colleges, and and even professional spaces if that if that warrants itself. But I think we need to have more people um, having these conversations with athletes because it's so important, man. Absolutely. Just like the stuff with like sexual assault is important. The mental health stuff is is important too. Um, and hopefully, I, I you know. I don't know what I would do, um, but maybe doing some work in mental health at some point. Hmm. I don't know if that is as a psychologist or social worker, or like. But I think later down the line, I would like to do some work in this field. I definitely see that for you. Um, I feel like your podcast is kind of like an introduction to that, a healthy introduction to that lifestyle of being involved in mental health and having these these conversations, pushing the narrative forward and uh, normalizing these conversations, right? And uh, I just want to say, I really appreciate you coming tonight, man. No, man. I'm, like, I, this I, is you, a dope conversation. You, you can have me on like, anytime, man. I'm, you got to come time. back for sure. No, no, no. I'll make time and I want to thank you for for having me on um, and being generous with your time to do this and um, and asking me great questions because you have me thinking tonight. And, and to be honest, man, like, these conversations are like therapy, you know, right. and forcing us all to think about things. And I think we we all have to pay for it for each other. Absolutely. Um, and for the next generation of kids and um, families that are, you know, going through some of the same things that we've gone through right. um, or will go through some of the same things. So I appreciate you having the platform. I appreciate you doing this work. Um, shout Thank out you. to CR and like all everybody else that's that's involved in the project. Because um, I think what you guys are doing is really important, and just in terms of building community around a lot of these things. So, 
That means a I lot. appreciate you. Shout out where people can find you and follow you and support you. Uh, you can follow uh, seven thirty at the seven thirty podcast. So it's at the seven three zero podcast on Instagram, Twitter, mostly on Instagram. We 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 have you on Instagram. Uh, and then you can find 7.30 on, you know, your favorite podcast streaming platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, CastBox, a- anything, anything that you're looking for, uh, you can find us. We got more content coming very, very soon. We got a big spring and summer ahead, so hopefully you guys can tune in. Word. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, whatever me- medium you're listening to this podcast on, whether it be iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, whatever the rating system they have, please utilize that because it definitely encourage us to keep going i like seeing the positive and the negative uh if you're interested in coming on the show as a guest email us at introvertedpodyahoo.com don't send us your music make your fucking emails appropriate don't just send me hey i want to come on the podcast and uh yeah thank you so much for listening it means a lot